take our Bibles this afternoon, that's different, uh, and turn to Acts, if you would, chapter number one, Acts chapter number one a few weeks back, we begin uh, our study through uh, the book of Acts, and we uh, entitled the series, Acts, the Continuing Ministry of Jesus Christ. When we went back to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, the book of Acts is the demonstration of Jesus building his church. Uh, and that is exactly what happens now in the first chapter. We are still focusing here on the first chapter. We're going to, uh, again, read verse 1 and work our way down to verse number 14 and continue in our study of the following three verses. And so notice here, Acts chapter number 1, verse 1. The Word of God says, The former treaties have I made of Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the season which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Amen. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, Jake, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. Notice verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. I want to go back. I know we will be dealing with verse 12 through verse number 14 in this particular study, but I want to go back to verse number 14 and notice what the Bible tells us here in verse number 4. The Bible says, Being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. But notice those next two words, but wait. Wait. For the promise of the Father. If you go over to verse number 14, uh, we find here them waiting for that promise of the Father. And notice, I guess we could say here, how are they waiting for the promise of the Father? Notice verse 14. 
These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. I think it will be a really appropriate message for this afternoon. I want to preach a message that I've entitled, Waiting for God. Okay. Waiting for God. Before we go into the message this morning and consider our study of verse 12, 13, and 14, I want to set up the stage, if you would, before we go to this place where we see it. It's, a bit. it's going to be about uh, 10 days that they are going to wait for the promise of His coming. They're going to be there in that upper room, praying and making supplication unto the Lord and waiting for this promise to come. And with that said, I want to make note of three things because as we look at this time of waiting, we notice three things. First of all, it was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of uncertainty. If you think about it, I know sometimes we have a hard time putting our place, uh, fitting ourselves in the Scripture and how we would feel in that moment, but understand, they've never experienced a day of Pentecost. They have no idea what it means for the Holy Ghost to come down upon them and to manifest Himself as uh, Jesus Christ promised to them. They have no idea even how long it's going to be. They're just waiting for the promise of uh, the Holy Ghost to come. And so notice here there's uncertainty in the promise of the Father. When would it happen? How would it happen? Uh, they did not know exactly how the situation would work out. Well, by the way, I think we are in a time of uncertainty as well. The question here, we find the question about also the kingdom. Notice in verse number 6, remember uh, when Jesus Christ begins to speak with them about the promise of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says, when they therefore were come together, in verse 6, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And so understand here, in this uncertainty, they have some misunderstanding about the kingdom. Is this mean now that he rose from the, from the dead uh, before his ascension? Is this time now for you to uh, kind of overthrow the Roman government and to restore the nation of Israel? That was still in their mind. And Jesus at that time says, it's not for you to know the time or the season. So they were uncertain about that. What is the kingdom of God uh, going to come? What is that going to happen? Uh, we, the Bible says here they also had a task at hand, and that was to wait. But again, when you wait, it's uncertain, isn't it? Right. Yes, sir. You don't know what is going to happen. You don't know how it's going to happen. But we also find in verse number 11, the departure of Christ made this uncertain. Because here Jesus Christ basically tells them, uh, you're going to wait for the promise of His coming, but He didn't tell them that He would ascend. They asked them, are you now going to restore the kingdom? And so in their mind, they thought to themselves, well, He rose from the grave, and maybe He's going to march into Jerusalem, He's going to overthrow the Roman government, everything's going to work out for us. That's not what happened. As a matter of fact, after 40 days, He is sent up into heaven, and He disappeared in the clouds. You see, when we read here that the, uh, the, the church was, uh, uh, the, the, the group, the believers here were in one accord in the upper room, understand that those particular times were times of uncertainty. But also, the second thing we note is that it was also a time of expectation. In verse number 8, think about what Jesus had told them. Ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, think about that. Uh, they, uh, we know that they were uncertain. They didn't know how it was going to happen or when it was going to happen. Uh, but they kind of were expecting 
something miraculous, something supernatural to happen in their midst. And so there was this sense of expectation. The Bible says in verse number 9 that Jesus Christ commanded them to be witnesses, notice in verse number 8, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So think about it, with the promise of the power of the Holy Ghost to come down upon them, then the result of that would be that they would become witnesses to the end of the world. Wow. So yes, these were uncertain times, but there were also times of, of expectation. Remember, as they were waiting there in the upper room, praying and making supplication to the Lord, uh, God had said, you're going to wait for the promise of the coming, and then the power of God is going to come down. Now, the expectation, I believe, is warranted on their part. I want to go back to uh, John, or let's go back first to Luke chapter number 5. I want to consider an example of one of the interactions of Jesus Christ with his disciples that we find in Luke chapter number 5. In Luke chapter 5, notice in verse number 1 we read here, and we notice the scene, the Bible says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gesenareth and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a drought. Verse 5. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the nets. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. So can you see the scene here? Uh, Jesus Christ tells Peter, says, All right, I want you to cast a, a, your net into the sea. And Peter says, We've already done that, but nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And then so many fishes came about that the net broke and the ship began to sink. What I'm telling you here is that when God says something would happen, that happened, the disciples have a track record to know that something is going to happen. Amen. And so when God says the power of God is going to come down, they have a sense of what that means in their lives because they've experienced that. But I want you to see that that not only happened in Luke chapter 5, but it also happened in John chapter 21. Now, in John chapter 21, I want you to go there with me because this is interesting, that this would happen again a second time, but this time was the time between the 40 days, between his resurrection and his ascension. Peter decides to go fishing, and he doesn't have much success in going fishing. And in John chapter 21, notice in verse number 1, After these things, Jesus sowed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of the disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They said unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately in that night. They caught nothing. And went, now by the way, these were experienced fishermen. That's what they did uh, for a living. So, there was no lack of experience there. Verse 4, But when the morning was 
Now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast a net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for a multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciple came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were, two hundred cubits, dragging the net with the fishes. Now it's interesting that that happened early on in the ministry of Jesus Christ, but now it happens between his resurrection and his ascension, where they have been fishing and toiling all night, and now Jesus shows up and says, well, cast your net on the right side of the ship, and they do exactly what he says. And now they bring in a multitude of fishes. The point I'm making is that when Jesus says that you need to wait in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Ghost come upon you so that you can be witnesses around the world, there was an expectation. They were expecting God to do something as they had seen God do something in the past when they simply did this, obeyed the word of the Lord. Yeah. As Peter had said. Uh, at thy word, I don't think we're going to get anything, but nevertheless, at thy word, I will obey. Amen. So we see that the time was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of expectation, but also thirdly, it was a time of peacefulness. Now, I believe that there's a contrast when we look at the timeline between the death of Christ and his ascension. The first few days after his death were not very good for the disciples. As a matter of fact, if you look at the condition, if you go back with me to John chapter number 20, if you find uh, the uh, group of the disciples there, notice in John 20, notice in verse number 19, the Bible says, that the same day at the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled, notice, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Now, I want you to see here, when Jesus Christ had died, it had been three days, and now Jesus in the scene appears, but understand, they were uh, up in that house, the doors were locked, in the Bible tells us the doors were locked, particularly because they feared the Jews. But when you come here to Acts chapter number 1, and you read of the disciples in the upper room, the same group of people, this time they're praying and they're making supplications to the Lord. I would imagine that if you looked at the disciples in John 20 and verse 19, you would come into that room. You would kind of see a quiet room. You would kind of see a room where people uh, are, uh, be, are troubled by the current situation, where you have uh, uh, the disciples who uh, we know uh, were split apart, right? There were some disciples that were uh, kind of going and doing their own thing. We have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We know in one particular instance when Jesus Christ went to go see the disciples, Thomas was not there. And so we know that, that there was uh, the, the group was fragmented. Uh, after the death of Jesus Christ. But when you reach Acts chapter number 1, you find that they're all there. All the disciples are mentioned, except for Jews. And there was also 120 people that were gathered there in the upper room. And so we find here... But this is this wonderful uh, scene, if you would, as we find uh, that there was a time of uncertainty, a time of expectation, but also a time of peacefulness. There was a, a scene, can you imagine now, the disciples are not in fear, but they're praying, expecting God to do something. And the Bible tells us that they were in one accord. 
And I believe that is the answer, by the way, and as we not only see here the answer because that uh, expression of one accord really uh, is, stands in contrast uh, to what the disciples were like there in John chapter 20 and verse 19. They were fragmented. If you read here in Acts chapter 1, and the Bible says they're one accord. As a matter of fact, you find this expression repeated all throughout the book of Acts that the church was in one accord. But what was happening? They were waiting on God to do something. Well, I believe in the same way we have to be waiting on God to do something. Uh, but, but what is, uh, uh, how uh, must God find His people as we're waiting on Him? How are we to be waiting? In one accord. Of one mind. I want to consider three truths this morning as we look into our text. I want you to notice in Acts chapter 1, number 1, we see the evident consent. Notice in verse number 12, after Jesus Christ ascends up into heaven, the Bible says in verse 12, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Now remember uh, that Jerusalem was not the home of these men. As a matter of fact, most of, the, most of these men came from Galilee. Uh, many of them came from Capernaum. And so we find that these men here, when they were told to return to Jerusalem, they were not told to go back to their houses. They were told to go back to Jerusalem because that would be where the Holy Ghost would come down upon them. Uh, we see that in verse number 4. The Bible says, "...and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. And so Jesus Christ had told them to wait there uh, for the promise of his coming. But what we find here, something that we notice perhaps that often we gloss over, is that they consented. They obeyed the Lord. What Jesus Christ told them to do, they did. And that was evident. If you go back with me to the Gospel of Luke, in chapter number 24, at the end there, notice here how uh, the book ends, the book of Luke ends there in Luke chapter number 24. Notice in verse number 15. The Bible says, And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them, and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So we find in verse 52, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So you find here that uh, they consented, but also they were happy about consenting. Uh, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. We notice the fact in chapter 1 uh, that when Jesus Christ, the Bible says he commanded them to do something. You know, there's certain words I think we have a hard time liking. Words like command and submit. We don't like those words. Uh, we don't like when uh, the Bible is perhaps categorical about something and God commands us to do something and we uh, kind of it kind of hurts us because we don't like to submit to that. But we find here that the disciples not only were willing to submit, but they did it in a joyous way. The Bible says they went, notice, from uh, Olivet in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Now, although this was not the Sabbath, he just tells us here what the distance was from the place where Jesus Christ ascended to go back to Jerusalem. The Jewish law at that time demanded that a person travel only 2,000 paces 
on a Sabbath day. This is not quite one mile in distance. This is not, by the way, anywhere in the Mosaic Law. But it was given to the Jewish leaders who declared it basically unlawful to travel more than 2,000 paces on the Sabbath. And we ask ourselves, well, how did they come up with that? Well, it was done through tradition. During the wilderness wanderings, if you remember when they had the encampments, and all the children of Israel uh, encamped around the tabernacle, nobody encamped further than that distance. And so through tradition through the years, they came up with this uh, idea that, uh, well, uh, nobody should go out of the camp. Everybody on the Sabbath should have enough distance to go a Sabbath day journey from wherever they're in camp over to the tabernacle. And so that's what it means here, a Sabbath day journey. So from the Mount of Olivet, where Jesus Christ ascended to go back to Jerusalem, was just under two miles, and so they returned to Jerusalem. And so we see that the first thing here, as we're going to wait on God, they wait on God, we see their evident consent. And if as God's people, if we're going to be of one accord, there has to be an evident consent of God's people. Where God's people say, we're all going to obey the Lord. You see, that's what brought that, that group in unity. That's what made this group in one accord. You see, in John chapter 20, they were not in one accord. You had two on the road to Emmaus. Uh, you had uh, uh, Thomas missing in one of the meetings where Jesus Christ uh, shows up. And so you find that they were kind of all uh, scattered abroad. And they were in fear of the Jews. They were locked into their house. And so we find here that now it's quite different they are all obeying the Lord. They are coming and submitting to the Lord, returning to Jerusalem. And so we see the evident consent. But the second thing we notice in our text is this. We see the exceptional crowd. Now what I mean by exceptional crowd, I'm not saying that any of the men in the scene, in that upper room, uh, well, were anything more special than anybody else. I'm referring to this as an exceptional crowd because of what God has done in their lives. Because of what Jesus Christ has done in the lives of the individuals that are mentioned, and also in the lives of the individuals that are not mentioned. We find this in verse number 13 of Acts 1. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. Notice in verse number 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. I want to spend a few moments here to uh, talk about here this exceptional crowd. We know two things here. The Bible says, there's two expressions that he said. The Bible says they were in the upper room. In verse number 13, where abode both Peter and James and John. Now, the upper room, there was some sort, and, and that was typical in the houses of that day, particularly in the city of Jerusalem, that most houses had some sort of upper room in the top level of their houses. Typically, the upper room was a large room located all the way on the upper level of the home. It was used for typically devotion and prayer. It was also the place where often dead people would be laid until their burial. We find that, for example, in Acts chapter number 9. If you turn there, in Acts chapter number 9, we find an example of a, a body being laid in the upper room. Notice Acts chapter number 9 and verse number 36. The Bible says here, Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named uh, Tabitha, which 
by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, who when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And so we find here that by tradition, those upper rooms were used, yes, for prayer, devotion, uh, but also they were used as a place that would be a kind of separate from the entire house, that would be uh, a place often where uh, the bodies would be laid until the time of their burial. And so this is a, a room that we know is large enough to accommodate 120 people. The Bible tells us this later in this very chapter that were gathered together were about 120 people. Now, that means that I understand, I think that the level of comfort then is different than our level of comfort now. I think that these people at that time could probably fit in a whole lot smaller areas than we uh, fit in today. I think if we go a lot of cram into small rooms, uh, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but these were different times. And that upper room was uh, yet uh, smaller, uh, smaller in size than what we would think of today, but yet there was 120 people gathered there together and praying. We recognize, notice as we see the exceptional crowd, first of all, uh, we uh, notice the recognized crowd. And what I mean by the recognized crowd is the disciples that were there. You see, we see that the disciples were present and a list is given of these disciples. And I want us to think as we look through those names, to think about a little bit of the background. Because we, sometimes we, we get the wrong picture. We think these disciples kind of were born and bred into some type of divinity that uh, they went through those theological schools and seminaries, but you find that that is actually not true. A good number of them were simple fishermen. As a matter of fact, when you read later in the book of Acts in a few chapters, the religious leaders of the day were kind of disgusted by the preaching of Peter because they called these people ignorant and foolish men. But they took notice that they had been with Jesus. That's what stood out about these men. But let's note a few things about them. Peter, which is always mentioned first in the list of the disciples, he is the son of Jonas, a fisherman by trade who lived in Capernaum in Galilee. He is always the first mentioned whenever the list of the disciples is given. He was also married, and we also find that Peter was typically the more boisterous of the disciples. He was the louder one. He was often the one that would speak up uh, when Jesus had a question or asked the disciples for something. And so we find Peter here. Understand, Peter, we know that he would often be an impulsive man. We would say as we look through the pages of the gospel records, we would say, uh, you know, Peter is kind of seems to be impulsive, reactionary. Uh, and uh, we look at him, although we have his great confession of Matthew 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just a few chapters later, he takes Jesus apart and says, You're not, that's not going to happen, Jesus. And he rebuked Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that's the kind of tough man Peter was. We also see James. James here is the son of Zebedee, a brother of John. He was a fisherman who also lived in Capernaum. So again, another fisherman. John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. Both of them were called the sons of thunder. Uh, they, he was called also the beloved disciple. James and John were more to, well to do than the rest of the twelve. You read in Mark chapter 1 and verse 20 that they actually had uh, what they would call servants uh, that were fishing with them. That means that they perhaps had their own business and it was quite lucrative because they had people working for them that they paid to go fish. We also read of Andrew. 
Andrew was the brother uh, was brother of Peter, the son of Jonas. He was also a fisherman and originally a disciple of John the Baptist. Remember, he is the one that brought Peter uh, to Jesus Christ. It was Andrew uh, that uh, he would be, uh, I think he would stand in contrast to his brother uh, Peter because he was not as boisterous, uh, but he would be more of a quiet one. It's kind of like he brought Peter to Jesus and then Peter kind of took over and Andrew kind of is shoved on the background. The point I'm trying to make is you read through all of those names that we could even mention Matthew. Think about Matthew also. He was a publican and a tax collector. He was one of the most hated Jews of the day. A publican at that time were basically Jews who were hired by the Roman government to collect the taxes from the Jews. And they were known as traitors, but yet Jesus Christ called Matthew to follow him. And so we find a variety of many of those men. We find also James the, or Simon Zelotes. Now, uh, the Zelotes was a group of people who were trying to, um, uh, uh, really a fanatical group of people that would later in history, you find, uh, cause the downfall of the Jewish state. He is called a Canaanite twice. Zelotes often would have to attach him uh, to uh, the Canaanites. And so we find that this is the group of people that we would say that these are the recognized crowd. But do you see their background? They're different men. Uh, they're men that Jesus Christ has brought along. And these same men would be the same men that would turn the world upside down. Uh, these men whom the world would say they are insignificant. Jesus used those men. There's also, I would say, the remarkable crowd. What I mean by the remarkable crowd, I'm talking about an individual that's listed there uh, that has uh, uh, been around the Lord Jesus Christ longer than anybody else that is married the mother of Jesus. Now, before we go any further, I want us to notice here emphatically that this is the last time that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned. In other words, there is actually no praise given to her for the remainder of the New Testament. She is never called the mother of God. She is never praised. She is never prayed to. As a matter of fact, you find her participating and fitting in with everybody else in the upper room. And she doesn't have any position. Nobody comes to her, asks for a question. She is there among all the other people. But guess what? She's been there since the beginning. Remember, it was to her that was revealed that Jesus Christ would be put to death. And she observed that shame. She didn't know quite how that would happen. But guess what? She was there since the beginning. And she saw him die on the cross. I would call that the remarkable crowd. There's also the recent crowd. The Bible says here in verse number 5, uh, and with his brethren. So there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then there's his brethren. That's the brothers of Jesus. Now that's significant because if you read back in John chapter 7 verse 5, the Bible tells us, for neither did his brethren believe in him. So we find that his own family members of Jesus Christ, early on in his ministry, did not believe on him. As a matter of fact, on one particular occasion, uh, his brothers wanted him to go down to Jerusalem and kind of show everybody his miracles so that they could make him king, and Jesus didn't do that. That's not what he was there to do. But we find here that the brothers were there. That's quite remarkable. Those who denied Jesus Christ, who did not believe on Him now, were gathered together in the upper room. There's also the remaining crowd. If you read in verse number 15, the Bible says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of the names together were about 120. Now notice here, the Bible says the number of the names. They had a record of the names. These were, I guess you could 
would say, as we read on the day of Pentecost, these were, would be the first members of the church. The names were recorded. Now, all the names are not mentioned, but the point is this. Not all names have to be mentioned. Because it's not about the names in the first place. It's about the Lord. They were waiting for what? For God to do something. And we know that because God has been using fishermen. God has been using a publican. God has been using a zealot. God has uh, uh, been using uh, or changed the life of the brothers of Jesus and denied him. And there's 120 in at first, when we look at the 120, we know that there are a whole lot more than 120, but those were the ones that were present there at that particular time. And so we find not only the evident consent, the exceptional crowd, but thirdly, and this is really what we want to emphasize in this message, verse 14, we see the essential congruence. The Bible says in verse number 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. You see, in this verse, you have for us described the spirit that was in the upper room throughout the ten days of waiting for the Holy Ghost. They were of one accord, of one mind. There was a perfect unity in that place. In chapter 2, verse 1, notice in chapter 2, we know that when the day of Pentecost comes, they were still in one accord. Notice chapter verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And so when we began, they arrived in Jerusalem. The Bible says they started with one accord. And then ten days later, uh, the day of Pentecost, they're still in one accord. They were in one mind. There was a spirit of congruence in the upper room at that time. And by the way, that expression is found throughout the books of the book of Acts. How significant for us in Acts 2.46. And they continuing daily with one accord in Acts chapter 4 verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God. But we also find the opposite. In Acts chapter 7 verse 57. When Stephen is preaching, the Bible says, and they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. You know who Lot was in one accord? The world. The world was all against Christ. It's interesting because when you study uh, before the New Testament period, you have, you read of the Pharisees, you read of the Sadducees, you read of the Herodians, and all those groups kind of formed between the Old and the New Testament, and we find those groups where many of them were kind of sex, and uh, there was really the nation of Israel was a uh, uh, just a hot mess with all kinds of different people, different ideas, a different tradition that were incorporated and added to the Word of God, and there was a lot of conflict in the world until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, everybody's united against him. Uh, when the uh, disciples and the first century church go out and preach the gospel, you find the world once again united against the people of God. The truth is, things haven't changed. The world today will still unite together, despite all the differences, against God and against the people of God. We find here that three things about their unity. I want to notice first of all that their unity was unabridged. 
You see, everyone was in unity without exception. Notice the word the Bible says in verse number 14. These, what's the next word? All. These all were with one accord. You know what that means? Out of the 120 names gathered in the upper room, every single one of them was in one accord. Every single one of them. You know what that means? Nobody was there in the upper room to just observe. Nobody was there in the upper room kind of just sitting around doing nothing, thinking nothing, praying nothing. Every single person in that room was in one accord. Well, I can tell you, that will change the life of the church. That will change the life of the church. Well, when every single person uh, here, uh, that is again, uh, what's interesting, and by way of emphasis here, we understand, when they came back to Jerusalem, they didn't come, come back to the church building. Uh, they, they didn't come back to a place where they thought to themselves, this is going to be our permanent place. It was a temporary place. But you see, their unity was not in a building. Their unity was in the Lord. And all of them, by the way, without exception, and may that challenge us to see how essential this congruence is. We see their unity was unabridged, but secondly, we see that their unity was unrelenting. The next word we find is verse 14, these all, what's the next word? Continued. Now, the word continue is a very deep word. It means to continue. <laughs> Don't stop. Continuing. Now, some people have said, well, uh, uh, they really didn't continue in that upper room until, uh, you know, they were out and about and doing things. Well, uh, because people go back to uh, Luke chapter number 20, uh, 24. If you go there with me in Luke chapter 24, notice at the very last verse, in verse 53, the Bible says, and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Notice in verse 52, I mean, uh, worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So were they in the upper room or in the temple? Well, if you go with me to Mark chapter 16, we find here a pattern in Mark chapter 16, the very last verse of the gospel according to Mark. What's the last verse? And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following a bed. In other words, the last two verses, just like the last verse of Mark, doesn't talk about what happened before Pentecost. It talks about what happened after. It's a summary. It's kind of like a concluding statement, and they lived happily ever after. Basically, at the end, he says, look, they went out and preached everywhere. Well, we know they didn't go out and preach everywhere. They waited for ten days until Pentecost came. After that, they went and preached everywhere. Uh, but some people see, well, the end of those Gospels, so it's simply saying that when they were in the temple, that's what happened after the day of Pentecost, because we know they waited for ten days. Again, they were uncertain about those times. And so we find here that their unity was unabridged. Everybody was participating. Their unity was unrelenting. They continued. When you go to chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So we know they continued for ten days. There's one more thing we noticed about their unity. Not only was their unity unabridged, it was unrelenting, but thirdly, their unity was unambiguous. What were they unified in doing? See, that, that's the key. 
You know, it's, this is not, uh, you, you, you see the scene, it's not like somebody came in the building that day and said, all right, we all need to kind of be on the same page. So let's, let's have a discussion about how we can all be of one mind. Let's all get along and, you know, hold hands and sing a song. That's not how it went. They all went into the upper room. They knew what they were supposed to be doing. And they all just did it. As a matter of fact, we don't see any announcement. The only announcement that comes was after this. Peter says, hey, we need another disciple uh, to replace Judas Iscariot. That's the announcement. Before then, we don't see. We just see that they come into the upper room, and they're all doing the same thing. They're of one mind. But notice their unity was unambiguous. What were they doing? They were praying and making supplication to the Lord. Now, those two words are important because you say, well, that's kind of the same thing, right? Prayer and supplication. But prayer is more of a worship idea. Supplication is when you give a specific request, when you beg God for something. And so notice in this scene, the people of God were doing two things in the upper room. They were praising God, they were worshiping God in their praying. But they were also begging God for something. And you say, well, what, what were they begging God for? I'll tell you what they were begging God for. For the power of God to come down. That's what they were waiting for. That's the only thing they knew to do. Remember, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. So the order is the power and then the witness. You see, they were, they knew about the witness. They knew what they were supposed to say. Jesus explained to them at the end of, of, of Luke chapter 24. He expounded all the things in the scriptures, the things concerning himself. They knew what to say. But you know what they needed? They needed the power of God. And two things made that possible during that 10-day period. They prayed and they made supplication to God. The idea of prayer is the idea of worship. The word worship means to bow down before God, to humble yourself in the sight of God. And that truly is what God is looking for today. Just people who will humble themselves in the sight of God. And then the supplication has the idea of begging God. Would you please do this, Lord? Lord, would you... Please, would you please empower us to do your work? And they just didn't pray for it once. It was with supplication. They were begging God for him to do something. You see what that tells us? That the church that would form there, that they would be empowered on the day of Pentecost, was completely dependent upon God. They would not dare attempt anything until they had the power of God. Well, we need to be the same today. We ask ourselves, you know, what, what is it that's going to unify the church? The only thing that will unify the church is when every single church member submits to God and begs God for His blessing and for His empowerment. You see, unity is not just a cliche. Unity is around something that is specific. You see, this unity was unambiguous. They knew what they were looking for. They had an agenda and they had a program that would be fulfilled as we see in the book of Acts. And perhaps they never imagined it. They never imagined that this little group of 120 would one day reach the world. Romans chapter 1, we know that when Paul wrote to the church of Rome, he says, I, thank, I appraise you that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That's what Paul said in the church of Rome. You see, it had reached the ends of the world at that time. 
Why? Because we have to go back to its beginning. They were waiting on God. And the way they were waiting on God was all of them continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication. You know the greatest thing that can happen for this church? Is that a church building? That's where this church is being one accord. All continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication. That will be more beneficial to us than a church building. And may the Lord help us. As I mentioned, and this is more relevant now than ever, there's no church building ever mentioned in the book of Acts. Now we're grateful for buildings where we can be. But the point I'm trying to make is what is more important? Is it what we want? Do we want a church building so that we can say we've arrived? Or we just want to serve God and therefore we need a church building. It's just part of the thing. You see, we have to set our priorities right and ask the Lord, particularly in this time, what are we going to do as we're waiting on God? And may this church be of one accord. And I believe that the days of this church, yes, right now it's uncertainty. We're expecting... But we can be peaceful because we know God is going to.